0: The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in February 2007.
1: Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Seusten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway.
0: And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we welcome
1: a lady who needs no introduction, so I won't. I'll just say hi, Kristen. Kristen Chenoweth is with us.
2: Hi, guys. Hi, Kristen.
1: Kristen, you're currently starring in The Apple Tree, one of the roundabouts shows here in New York. We'll talk about your whole career from the day you were born until now. But let's get started. Let's not mention the year, okay? <laughs> with what you're currently doing, The Apple Tree, which is a show that uh, first was on Broadway back in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. And uh, it starred Barbara Harris in the role that you have. It's mm-hmm. really three different shows within a show, three different plays. Right. It's Mark Twain's The Diary of Adam and Eve. Right, right. Frank Stockton's The Lady or the Tiger, and Jules Pfeiffer's Passionella. Right. Which you play two different roles, Passionella and Ella. Right. You probably never saw Barbara Harris on Broadway, did you?
2: No. uh, Fortunately, I I wasn't um, born yet. Right. uh, And that is true. But um, I have seen video Uh of her doing um, the chimney sweep Mm -hmm. at the Tonys.
1: The uh, Passionella.
2: Yeah. And I just, you know, she was a very unique, special, and is... I should not speak as if she is no longer with us, but she was a unique talent on Broadway at that time and, uh, you know, just not fitting into any part. So, you know, they write this for her and as well they should have.
1: Well, I've I've seen you in The Apple Tree twice now.
2: Oh, my gosh. It was wonderful. Thank you.
1: And it looked like it was written for you. I mean, you were so perfect in all three roles, which are very different roles. All three of them, you make them your own.
2: First of all, are you single? (laughs) A. And B, uh, I see the ring. I see the ring. Sorry, (laughs) sorry. Sorry. Um, Listen, you know what? The writers of the show, Jerry and Sheldon, said to me. Jerry
1: Bach and Sheldon Horning.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Those two little guys that wrote a little show called Fiddler. um, Said to me, we have not wanted to revive the show until we saw you, saw you, became aware of who you were. So when the apple tree came up at the encores a year and a half ago while I was doing West Wing, maybe it's two years now, I had never, people don't realize, I spent my collegiate career learning arias. I didn't spend my collegiate career learning musical theater. I did some musical theater roles, Mm -hmm. but I didn't know the apple tree. I read it. I said, A, that first act is perfect. It's perfect um, on board with that alone. Then I heard the score. And although I think there are surely better singers than Barbara Harris, I've never been more touched by her recording. I just think it's perfect because she's such an actress, it all comes through. So then they tell me, we have never want to revive it until we met you. We're, we think you're the only person basically alive who can do it. And I was slightly intimidated. But I thought, you know what? I'm a big risk taker. And I took the risk. And here's what they said to me, which was the best advice. They said, "This was Barbara Harris. Now it's you, and we have to make it yours." And that was gave me the freedom then to become to do it.
1: So, how did they make it yours, or how did you make it yours?
2: Well, you know, Sheldon's so gracious. You know, I have ideas of how to what to add, and it, you know, I make it maybe tiny more current. For example, in Brian's song, um, when when e- he's singing about all of Eve's, you know, uh, fixing up the hut,
1: B- uh, Brian Darcy James,
2: correct, as Adam, I'm running by the whole time with flowers and this and that, and I asked the director Gary if I could run by with a big plant or big leaf that covered basically everything, but all you saw was my legs, and and if I could say I know exactly where to put it, <laughs> and you know that's just a An example of um, me going to Sheldon and him saying, "Just only the only thing I ask is that you tell him I wrote it." So uh, (laughs) he wrote that line. (laughs) Wink, wink.
0: When we talk about going into it and, and taking it on for yourself, was there more freedom taking it on initially? Knowing it was at encores and everybody understands short rehearsal period, short run, et cetera, et cetera.
2: Oh yeah, there's so much less less pressure, and you know that the people that are at the encores are subscription house. You know that they, you know they're probably going to want to they're going to want to be there, and they're they want to want to see this show that hasn't been done since 1966. And it ha- all I I just had my built in audience, and I just took the risk, and it did make it easier. I never expected the reviews and the and and then what all followed you know which was producers wanting to move it right away
0: You are famous for being incredibly prepared whenever you go into a show. So even with that short rehearsal period, how much were you ready to know exactly what you were going to do with encores and then coming out of encores when the roundabout opportunity presented itself, how much did you want to change what you've done?
2: Interesting question. I was doing the West Wing when I got the offer. I had like a month before we had hiatus and then I was coming to New York to do the show. I learned the entire score before I came. Mm so that my uh, I wouldn't have to think about the songs. You know, I could then just play. There is a myth uh, that I come in with everything prepared. What I do like to do is have a, a, a knowledge of things I want to try, and I don't like to memorize uh, all the lines because they may they may change. This has been the case in the past now when you have the apple tree and it's encores, you can pretty much learn the lines because you pretty much know it's not a new piece. It's been done. So I did come in very prepared for that show. Um, there was just a lot of freedom given to me by the director, Gary, and um, how I changed things was basically we had more of a process to discover first of all I don't think there's anything better than Act One. And I don't think there's a song better written where it comes in the show than what makes me love him at the end of Act One. So I wanted to really spend my time on Eve um, this time around um, because it's Twain and Harnick at a, at his best, I believe. And also Jerry Bach's score. Come on, there's nothing better than that. The melody, the overture. So what I really wanted to do was really discover more about being the first lady the first woman and also the song feelings feelings are tumbling over feelings you know um you know what does that mean and also when she cries she's so full of emotions the first time she's felt anything she just knows things more i just investigated it more i and then um then you feel once you quote unquote nail act one act two and three you feel like you can have a
1: You can have fun. Well, Act 1 is The Diary of Adam and Eve. It's you, and it's Brian Darcy James as Adam, Mm -hmm. and Mark Kudish as as the snake, just the three of you. There are other cast members in Act 2. How did you become, how did you in your mind become the first woman? There had never been a woman on Earth before. Suddenly, you're the first woman, and Brian is the first man. How did you become the first woman? I mean, what what were you thinking when you created that?
2: I was thinking like a child. Uh Uh-huh. Very childlike, because there are no rules, and you don't edit. Mm -hmm. Eve does not edit. And so it's, it's childlike in its way. It's innocent. It's so easy. It's hard. And I've said that so many times. The trick with Eve and Adam and the snake is that we've, this is the first time we've built a hut. This is the first time we've made a baby. This is the first time I have figured out how to cook. Um, so there are no rules. I'm no. still discovering things on, on stage um, uh, during feelings, for example, a song that I keep bringing up feelings are t- um, she says something's happening in my stomach sometimes it happens on my skin I find myself now in, in the character really examining my skin and ex- my hair mm. um, just being a female and then when when he you know the, there's always the, the opportunity to really let it, let it go with the tears when he says what are you doing and she says I'm crying and she's so uh, and he says you're raining and she says no I'm crying <laughs> So what we've learned here is that basically women have always been smarter and are the uh, more powerful sex, And <laughs> that's how I feel about that.
1: I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to challenge that. Howard? <laughs>
0: <laughs> you were talking about it's a show that was done, obviously, 40 years ago, and so it was set. But when Sheldon Harnick visited with us a couple of months ago, he talked about the fact that there was going to be a little bit of work in the third act. And I'm wondering if you can talk about just what those adjustments were and why.
2: I know. Here's what I know. Um, I know that they went back to revisit and thought maybe it could be, you know, a different character, a different... And there was something rewritten, and I I never saw it. I don't know what it was, but it turned out that everybody agreed it needed to be the chimney sweep in the passionella. That's what I know. Um, as far as me making, you know, I really wanted to take advantage of the fact that Ella can't sing. That she sings pretty much every note just underneath the pitch. Um, it's, I've gotten better at, at that. It's incredibly difficult for me because I do have perfect pitch. Um, it, it's, it's actually, um, it makes like nails on chalkboard for me. But it's getting, that's one of the, the improvements I feel that is coming along with the show. Ella sings every note just slightly underneath so the pitch. Y- so
0: you've had to work to not be perfect.
2: correct. I, I know that. I hope that doesn't sound arrogant. <laughs> please, fans, please but don't think I'm arrogant. No, but it, it's
0: <laughs> fascinating because you have to work against, you know, your you've achieved what you've achieved in your career for your singing ability and then to work against it for a character. Is, yes. Is
2: Ar- Arthur Coppock came to opening night and he said, and I, by the way, it has grown and it's, it's almost like a totally different, you know, it's grown so much. He said... I can't not believe that you were able to do that, being the musician you are and the singer you are. And I'm telling you, it is a challenge every night. But the more off key, just slightly, not not a whole bunch, just underneath the pitch. Now it just the audience goes insane, and they clap in the middle of it. They can't get enough of the chimney sweep, um, the, the Ella, the chimney sweep girl, and she is such a character. I I mean, look, everybody asks me what my favorite thing to play is. I love Eve because. She, it's, she's the first woman, and I think the first act is perfect. But I have really grown to love that Ella Chimney Sweep. And my mom said, I almost wish you didn't have to change into the pretty girl. <laughs> but, you know, that would, wouldn't would be the point. <laughs> well, she,
1: she, she's probably the most fun to play. You go from being the Chimney Sweep into the Marilyn Monroe, Jane sure. Mansfield type of slinky, sure. you know, femme fatale type. It's
2: interesting you bring that up. A lot of people say Marilyn Monroe, Jane Mansfield, and certainly those are... Uh, people who I think of, um, there's somebody else that I thought of, Anna Nicole Smith, mm, cool. um, in my mind, who was today sort of like that person. So I was incredibly sad to hear of her death the other day. I mean, she used to hop around a lot, um, and so I, I hop a lot. I think of Anna Nicole a lot as I'm doing that part.
1: You you hop around in that tight and gown. In that tight gown, and those by the high way... high shoes. Yes,
2: and I can't eat anything, by the way. I can't wait to... March 12th, I'm going to go have a big hamburger with fries and a shake.
0: <laughs> as you talk about the depth of looking into these characters, it's interesting because it's a show where a lot of people talk about them as sketches. Mm-hmm. And, and you're talking so seriously about it. In the course of the evening, you're playing three, some might say, four characters. Mm-hmm. Do you have issues with how fast you've got to transition from one to the next
2: and it's uh, certainly the challenge of it um, but it's something I'm really uh, I never say this about my work ever but I'm proud that of, of being able to Because at first I was like how from Barbera to Chimney Sweep that's the hard, even the harder one and by the way I'm really loving playing her a lot too because she's everything I'm not the lady and the tiger but um, that was my big worry because Ella is so different from Barbara. And I'm telling you, the minute I walk off that stage, when the lights are out, I go back to my little telephone booth to change, and I start sniffling, and I wipe off my lipstick, and I put those smudges on, and it, everything changes for me. <laughs>
0: And in multitasking, okay, you're playing three different characters, maybe four, depending on how you think about it. In the midst of all this, from almost the moment the show opened, then you're spending your days working on another entire performance, namely preparing for your concert at the Met. Yes. Where do you find the energy?
2: Oh, Howard. (laughs) John. Boys. (laughs) Um, Vitamins and sleep. This was my schedule. First of all, I had the Met date before I had apple tree. And, you know, I – they – I got to say, they worked it out. Uh, app, um, roundabout, Todd Hames, to his credit, said, we'll cancel the show that night. Let you go do it. <laughs> Problem is,
0: you, you, <laughs> most people would be canceling everything for a week before their solo debut. <laughs> yes, at the Met.
2: and I, I, I mean, in hindsight, it was such a. The Met was uh, probably one of the best nights of my career for me personally as an artist and a singer. The schedule would be this: I would do, um, you know, I'm doing a lot of belting and mixing in uh, the Apple Tree Bar One Note in. Um, gorgeous, which uh, Barbara Harris, I'm sure, made a gag out of, which she didn't sing the high D. Somebody else did, but I actually do the high D. That's, you know, that's the one note that I do high. Everything else is belted or mixed. Um, I would go home at night after the apple tree. This went on for um, about two months. I would be quiet. Until three o'clock the next day, then I would go to rehearsal with my conductor Andrew Lippa, and we would uh, work on all the material that I wanted to do, the new stuff. Then I would usually see for for,
1: for the Met. For the Met, yep. and then
2: that, then once once or twice a week, I would go see Joan later, my voice teacher, who would. Exercise. All we did was exercises for the upper range because I am a coloratura, and yet it's it's like when you work out. If you don't work out that part, you're going to get weak. So um, for two months, that was my life. I never go out. I don't have a life, really. It's just about music. It's just been just about music. And act two was mostly completely new for me at the Met, which was more legit. And I loved it.
1: Well, another very well known actress, another blonde actress who um, has played some of the same roles that you've played, mainly, uh, Marion Peru and The Music Man and Kunigunda in Kambi, and Candide. I'm talking about Barbara Cook. Yes. On this program. And Barbara Cook also appeared at the Met yes. as a one-woman solo concert. Yes. She said she really doesn't do anything special vocally. She just goes out and sings and often forgets to do warm-ups. Do you have any special preparations that you do either at the Met or on stage at the Roundabout or anywhere that you do?
2: I want to just say this about Barbara. First of all, she's one of my idols. There's Uh probably three women that that are in that category, and she's one of them. Uh We were doing a Sondheim tribute down for Paul Newman and Joanne at their camp, and uh, police uh, my, my my Christian fans don't get mad but I'm going to quote Barbara Cook right before she walked out my poor timing uh, it was me and Patty Lapone and mm-hmm. Barbara Cook and I, thank goodness I was first um, I wouldn't want to follow either of those ladies right before she walked I, out I, she has been by the way very gracious to me Darren Candide she said there was me and now there's you um, she said um, I said I just want you to know that you are she seemed very nervous I said I just want you to know that you're it in my book. There's nobody better. Mm. And she goes, oh, fuck me, kid. <laughs> and
1: I just <laughs> thought
2: I just loved it. And then to talk to her at the apple tree opening, she was so lovely. But um, I think there are just some people that are born that that have the voice. Um, I think um, I was born with a gift, but I learned to hone it in college and got my, d- got my degree. And, and you know what? There are, there are nights where I'm like, mm, I can't, I'm not feeling the warm-up. And I'll make it short. I'll do five minutes. Talking here with you today is a warm-up. Mm-hmm. Um, usually I kind of want to talk up here because that's where it lands, and that's where I naturally talk. <laughs> um, and Maybe most of you listening won't notice much <laughs> difference, but <laughs> I am working on my warm-up as we speak.
0: Coming back to the Met concert specifically, you've obviously done concerts across the country, but I'm curious about how you chose what you would do for your Met debut? What did you, since the majority of our listeners didn't have a chance to be there, what did you want to express in that concert even differently than from other concerts that you've done?
2: If I hadn't had the Apple Tree eight times a week, it would have been mostly Aria's and more legit legit musical theater, i.e. Adam Gettle, i.e. Ricky Ian Gordon. Uh, What it ended up being was Act One, was labeled Things You Want, which is the girl in 14G, Taylor la, la Latte Boy. I came out in a Mets jersey, very confused as to where I was. And then Andrew Lippa says, um, this is the Met, not the Mets, and then I ran and changed and sang Gorgeous. <laughs> um, I gave the people what they want from me. The second act was entitled Things You Need. Uh, I would have probably put some German leader in. I probably would have sung Susanna. But these are things that require much more rehearsal than two months than I had. So what I did was I sang more light opera. I sang Italian Street Song, Victor Herbert, with a tambourine dance, which I'm actually very proud of, too. And then I sang a Gilbert and Sullivan medley, which is um, uh, something of interest to me, which would be be, uh, to do HMS Pinafore or Pirates maybe revive it. I don't know. I love Gilbert and Sullivan. And I'm so I feel so right for it because it's comedy with legit singing. And then I chose a Ricky Ian Gordon piece, an Adam Gettle piece, an Andrew Lippa piece. And then, of course, I, I want my encore was Glitter and Be Gay, which, was, which is never easy. Um, so it, it was more legit, but there wasn't, you know, it would have been different had I not had eight shows a week. It would have been a little bit more perhaps serious,
1: you mentioned a song just a moment ago. I'm thinking maybe we should listen to the song that you mentioned, the one about Apartment 14G. You have a, uh, a CD called Let Yourself Go. Yes. Uh, would you mind if we played the song?
2: I would absolutely be honored for you to play it. Want to tell
1: us a little bit about it before we do?
2: Dick Scanlon and Janine Tesori, we met during the workshop of Millie. And they said, we want to write you this song. you have any ideas? And I told them about living in my first apartment in New York, and above me was a bass player and below me was an opera singer and we would all get on each other's nerves and Dick and Janine went and wrote this song for me and, and I that, do all the voices and was
1: that in fact your apartment number? I don't know it was 4FPS by uh, the way okay there's our guest Kristen Chenoweth from her album Let Yourself Go the girl in 14G and she doesn't remember the exact apartment number do you remember what part of town it was in?
2: oh Upper West Side
1: 107. You came to New York and went straight to the Upper West Side, no living in the village or anything like that.
2: No, and what's funny is um, I remember saying to my mom, I think I want to live in that Greenwich Village area. (laughs) And she said, I think it's called Greenwich, but I could be wrong. And so I did some, you know, studying and investigation and found out in fact it was Greenwich. Um, But I've always been an Upper West Side girl. I love it there.
1: And what did a girl from Oklahoma know about Greenwich Village anyhow?
2: I just had heard it in a song or in a movie, and I just always thought. And then I saw the sign, and then I remember going to, of course, I had to go to Canal Street and buy my fake Rolex. So um, I remember telling my mom I, – I told her told her everything that I did because I was by myself and learning the city, you know, with a job. I had a job at night at the paper mill, but I was learning the city, trying to learn subways on my own and learn – my roommate had booked My Fair Lady tour and left me there. So I remember thinking I'm getting going to go to Houston Street and then I'm going to get off, at, you know, mm-hmm. and go to Canal and – it was like a year later that someone kept saying Houston, Houston. I was like, <laughs> no, it's pronounced Houston. That's where my parents live. It's Houston.
1: <laughs> not, well, th- not in New York, it's not. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what was your first break when you came to New York? A lot of people have, have heard or read your the story, of course, of you were a runner-up in Miss Oklahoma, you had classical music training, but you picked up and came to New York. What was, what was the real first casting opportunity? This is what know?
2: happened. I was accepted to Academy of Vocal Arts, uh, postgraduate work to be study more opera and get more honed in German Italian and French it's one of the foremost schools Academy of Vocal Arts in Philadelphia for opera I've been accepted they take maybe five to eight ten people a year I had two weeks or so before the program before I started my program and my best friend Denny Downs and I'm went to New York. I helped him move into his New York apartment. And I thought, you know, I'm going to go to Equity and just hang out and see what it's like because obviously, you know, opera was important to me, but growing up, I was a big musical theater uh, listener. And I always took ballet, so I was a dancer as well. And always, always acted. I mean, I always put on my own plays. I didn't have a sister. I had a brother who was in chemical engineering, so I was kind of by myself in my room making up things, which... In some cases, could be rather scary when I think about it. And he might
0: have been doing the same thing, but <laughs> in a different field.
2: Correct. Correct. So basically what happened, the short story, and I'll try to make it brief, is I went, to an, I went to sign up for an audition. I thought I just would experience a New York audition for a play called Animal Crackers, a Marx Brothers musical. Charlie Repoli was the director michael lichtenfeld was the choreographer at paper Mill playhouse a, a place in new jersey i heard and then i signed up i was not a member of equity so they said if there's time we'll see you at the end of the day so i got mcdonald's and i sat out with the older men who kind of hang out the to watch people come and go and i learned a lot of about their beginnings and um it was 5 30 and the the um I call him a host, but he's not the host. He's the guard or whatever. He comes out of the equity building, mm-hmm. of the equity room, and he goes, oh, we forgot. Mm-hmm. And I said, that's okay. You know, me me, me being the uncle. Now I'd be like, uh, yeah, and you're taking me in there right now. Then I was like, oh, I understand. No problem. And he said, no, 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 no. I, you waited for five hours. You're going to mm-hmm. be seen. So he brought me in. I sang Somebody Somewhere, a song I'm sure very inappropriate, inappropriate for this show. They said, do you belt? I said, um, yeah. But I had my book, you know, from college. Mm-hmm. I still remember it a pink folder. I sang then I want a uh, other side of the tracks from Little Me. They said, do you dance? Michael looked felt. I said, yes. And they taught me a little tap thing right then and there. I was okay and... They said, okay, do you, would you cold-read this? Basically, I cold-read this scene for sort of the singer-dancer girl, Arabella. And they said, who's your agent? And I said, well, I don't have an agent. I'm just here for fun. I'm here <laughs> on vacation before I start Academy of Vocal Arts. I'm going to be an opera singer. And Charlie Rapoli set me down, and he goes, um, you're very unique because you walk in the room and you think you're one thing, but you're really many things, and your voice does a lot and you're really a really good actress, I think you need to think about seriously
1: mm.
2: what you want to do with your life because you would be a great addition to the musical theater world. Now, I give him this credit because it's absolutely the truth. And I said, well, I'm, I, I understand. And he said, well, we, we want to give you this role. And we've been looking for three months. Wow. And I said, uh, and they said, who do we call? I said, well, you have to call my dad because he's really good at making deals. And mm-hmm. they did.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I went to home, you know, to, to before I was supposed to start AVA, and obviously I had a decision to make. And my dad just looked me dead in the eye and goes, where is your heart? And I said, Dad, I'm, I'm an actress. I'm an act. He goes, but you're a singer and you're a dancer. But you feel that you want to go to, you want to do the New York thing, and I said, I know it with all my heart. Now I'm, I, took this path in opera, but and succeeded. But you know what? I'm supposed to do this. I know it. And he made my deal. He's and he said, apparently there's a union you can join. And we (laughs) got me signed up, and and, um, that's how it all started. And then I got my first agent.
1: Imagine how your life might have been different if you hadn't just decided to try an audition, to see what it was like, and hung out for five hours at McDonald's and waited all that time.
2: Well, my therapist says to me that there's a reason I did that, Uh that deep down... I really did want Broadway. I mean, I was a kid growing up in Oklahoma that never got to see shows unless... We, they took me to everything on, on tour. And I remember seeing, being very little and seeing Chorus Line. And I remember Val singing Tits and Ass and my mother just being, oh my gosh. <laughs> and then I remember Cats coming through and I remember saying, I didn't get, get it at all. And I, remember, and I remember saying, I got it. I know exactly what it was about. Mm. And um, I just, I ne- it never left me. So that I'm I did what I now I'm full making full circle because I'm doing more opera and we'll do more mm-hmm, opera in the mm-hmm. future.
0: But you did do what so many people starting out for so many pe- there are a lot of people who think you just kind of burst upon the scene and you mm. were doing things like you were in the fantastics, you uh you were in uh the workshop of a zombie prom mm-hmm. I discovered from an early bio, you were up at Goodspeed. Um there was there was a lot of that. Scraping around the first few years and Absolutely. just taking, getting what you could get.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I what I did, and I didn't know it at the time, was I was taking little stair steps up to the right place. Which was, I got, I would get a lead at Goodspeed, then I would get a lead at the Guthrie. And by the way, these are places I'm very proud to have worked. And then off Broadway, I remember I got offered Christine the, the not the Cop at Yeston, the Andrew Lloyd Webber. Or the Fantastics. Now, the, this was overseas. Um, the Fantastics off-Broadway pays. You know, I think I brought home $180 after taxes. Mm. I would have made a lot of money doing uh, doing
0: the, Lloyd Webber, the Phantom. Lloyd
2: Webber Phantom. And I remember I've always been a big thing of listen to your heart, listen to your heart, listen to your heart. And I was like, you know what? I think I should stay in New York. And I think I should just be here to be seen in the show and, you know... It was a, it was the right move for me. I did the fan, the Fantastics and then Zombie Prom. Every that show, even though it, it kind of disappeared, that show every ingenue in town auditioned for, and I got it. You know, and I remember being telling my mom, "Hey, I got this part," and everybody else tried out, and you know, I, but I did my dues. Everybody does think that I I didn't ever go on tour in, until Charlie Brown, but I did do Goodspeed Paper Mill. Guthrie, um, I was out there, you know, and I took a job called Box Office of the Damned at the Classic Stage Company off-Broadway and was very proud of that show, you know, I, but I, I didn't make a lot of money.
1: Well, you paid your dues in all these various, very fine companies all over the country, then... Almost 10 years ago, not quite, but almost 10 years ago, you did make your Broadway debut as couple number 25, the female half of that couple number 25, and also couple number four <laughs> in Steel Pier. Yes. How did you get your first Broadway job?
2: Oh, gosh. Well, some people consider my first Broadway job Scapan, the play that Bill Irwin did at oh, the Roundabout.
1: Oh.
2: Um, and Bill Irwin was kind enough. He knew that I had the Steel Pier workshop and that, that we were gonna, it was going to be a conflict, but he let me open the show. From um, m- And I was there a month. Uh-huh. Hmm. And so I will always love that man. So my really first thing was Moliere. And I remember thinking, they want me for a play? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, my first thing was always the character and the actor. Um, Steel Pier, I auditioned over a period of time forever. I remember the auditions going on for the workshop. On and on, like over two months, and I and I knew that they had originally kind of thought of a tall, chorus girl type to play this part, which and is
1: you perfectly. Uh, yeah, ex- except <laughs> for um,
2: the mini version. <laughs> um, and basically, uh, she needed to really be able to sing because uh, she was uh, in love with Jeanette McDonald. That was the mm-hmm. whole, the character's whole thing, and she's also very ambitious. And the part was rather small in the workshop, and I remember my final audition. John Cander and Fred Epp were there. Scott Ellis, who I will always love because he gave me my first Broadway musical, and also introduced me to my second mother, Deborah Monk, um, basically, I went in, I sang the song that they had then, which was different than what ultimately ended up being, and I read and I left, and my Susan, Susan Stroman kept smiling at me, and I said, you know what, I did the best job I could. If I don't get it, I'm quitting. <laughs> no, <laughs> if I don't get it, it's just not meant to be because I just did the best I could do. And um, we got the call that I got it. And I'm telling you, John Cander wrote me a song that people thought I lip-synced to because it was constant. It's all op- operetta. It was Jeanette McDonald. And it was high E-flat after high E-flat. And the last note was a high E-flat held for 16 bars. And those two men said, when we got you, we changed the whole thing. And the part became a little bit bigger. And it was a very special and unique experience. And um, I speak about it now, and especially I think it's uh, perfect to talk about today, that my friend Danny McDonald, who was the star and lead of that show, passed away last night of a a brain tumor, basically. And he played a character in the show that was an angel, um, that nobody could really see, except for Karen Ziemba's part. And uh, I know that he's a, that he was an angel on earth and certainly now in heaven. and um, you know, that show just Fred Freddie being gone, I, I think they're up there together laughing at all of Deborah jo- Monk's jokes and Curtains is coming up. and I don't know, spe- Steel Pier will always be a special have a special place in my heart, and I think it deserved a much better run than it got.
0: After Steel Pier what was probably your real breakthrough role in the minds of many two years later on Broadway, namely Sally Brown in You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. Now, for those who aren't familiar with the Broadway revival and the original Charlie Brown, Sally Brown was not in You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, for those of us who did it in high school or college or junior high or camp. Um, And ultimately one song <laughs> was so central to <laughs> your that your being your role um at what point in the development of the new material did you get cast and was that song already written or did it get written for you
2: this is my favorite uh story no, by the way all these stories i are are true everything i say is true However, the best part about this story is that I had an, an opportunity to do um the singer dancer girl Winnie in Annie Get Your Gun with Bernadette who was another one of my I said there were three women she's 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 in the top Idol number three. Two. Yes. Um so basically um that was a job security. Um and then my agent said they want you to come in and audition for Charlie Brown. And I said okay, and he goes but you have this, you know, you have this Offer, I said I know, but I I, I think why not? Let's see if, if we can negotiate. You know, let's have some fun. And I went in and auditioned, and Michael Mayer looked at me and he said, "I have an idea, and I can't share it with you yet. But you're just going to have to trust me. If you take this job, you're just going to have to trust me." Now, I walked out of that room going, "Well, I guess I got the job." Um, I auditioned for, by the way, Patty who was a, not peppermint patty but the amalgamation of all the women who were not Lucy. Mm. And then I had the offer to do Winnie and my agents everybody everybody except for my then fiance Mark Kudish. He said, you got to do Charlie Brown. There's only six people in it. You'll probably get a song. You got to do it. And I was like, "But but the money, the the, the longevity." He's like, "No. You got to do Charlie Brown." And it was something in my heart that I kind of felt anyway. So I was like, okay, I'm doing Charlie Brown. Everyone thought I was crazy.
0: But your cast is Patty now, not as Yeah, cast is
2: Patty. So I show up at first day of rehearsal and sitting in front of every character. Anthony Rapp has a hat with Charlie Brown on it and all this Charlie Brown paraphernalia. Ilana Levine, who was a perfect Lucy, had all of her Lucy stuff. B.D. Wong, Stanley Wayne, all of us sitting there. Roger Bart. And then I sit down at my chair and it's Sally. And I said, oh, I'm so confused. First of all, yeah, I love Sally. She was always my favorite. And Michael didn't even know that. But because I'm a little sister to a older brother who constantly rolled his eyes at me, I <laughs> I got it.
1: Mm.
2: So I said to Michael, what's this? And he goes, it's a secret I couldn't tell you. I had to clear it with Charles Schultz, but I want you to create the role of Sally Brown. And I was like, I'm, I'm confused. And he said, basically, I want you to, Finds here's all, and he had Charles books. Charles Schultz sent every strip, uh, every book that contained every uh, strip that Sally was in. And basically, I got to try out all these strips with Michael's help. Obviously, I give full credit for my (laughs) entire success to Michael Mayer. Mm -hmm. Um, and he trusted me and he would let me. Try things out. We did go to Delaware. I think we went to two other cities and we tried things out. And some I thought that I thought were going to kill would be um, terrible, and ones I thought were kind of weird would really score. But how the song came about was Andrew Lippa called me one day. He goes, I'm really, they want me to write your character a song. And I said, Oh, fantastic.
0: Did you know Andrew at the time?
2: Um, I'd done the workshop of his wild party. Like four workshops for him. And he said, I have an idea because I keep reading the strips and she keeps having all these new philosophies. Every day she's got a new philosophy. I said, exactly. Exactly. I know. And he said, let me just try writing something. I said, he goes, but the word philosophy. I said, Charles Schultz is not for children. I mean, it is, but it's not. And Sally – Language is very, very complicated and very – I remember she comes out with the the jump rope, and she's devastated. And Charlie Brown goes, Sally, what's the matter? And she goes, I don't know. I was jumping rope. Everything was fine. And then suddenly it all seemed so futile. Now, every adult in the house loved me. The kids were kind of like, Hmm. But then the new philosophy song they could relate to because of all the different philosophies that she had, which was, why are you telling me? And no, and I can't stand it. And I just... Andrew Lippa and Michael Mayer made my career, and there it is. And I'm so happy for Michael Mayer's success in Spring Awakening. He's always been, to me, one of the best directors, and now he's getting his due. So, Michael, I love you. Andrew, obviously I see you all the time because you're my conductor. Um, obviously that was a special experience and not one as an actor that you get very often.
1: Not only did they write a song for you, they wrote a part for you and basically changed the show, made Sally now a central character. I don't
2: think they even meant to, but I remember when uh, when Roger Bart, who was one of my closest friends, said, you know, there's this thing in the script where they said Sally and, and Snoopy go rabbit chasing and it lasts 30 seconds. I have an idea. And, you know, he said, we should. it should be a running theme. And I said, yes. And we could do themes like, go, 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 like camouflage. And then, you know, dun, 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 dun. dun. I mean, we're both mm-hmm. slightly insane. So Michael Mayer was like, okay, go in the other room and figure it out. <laughs> and so we did. And then rabbit chasing became a lot of people's favorite thing. When it was just originally 30-second little thing that they did in the show.
1: Well, why don't we play my new philosophy, which is Sally and Schroeder.
2: Yes. Stanley Wayne Mathis played the part.
1: From the nineteen ninety nine revival of "You Are a Good Man," Charlie Brown. That's my new philosophy. Next major Broadway credit: little show still running called "Wicked," <laughs> the original Glinda. <laughs> now
2: Juggernaut. Yeah, they should just be called Juggernaut.
1: <laughs> it's a jug- indeed. It is. Um, how did how did you become Glinda?
2: Uh, Stephen Schwartz.
1: Composer, I was doing yeah. the
2: composer. I was doing a, a a little show, a huge hit for NBC called Kristen, uh, which is it was
1: a sitcom that you started. Uh-huh.
2: Right? Uh I had gone and done the movie Annie and uh, with Rob Marshall and done a play epic proportions on Broadway, and I really had been offered. You know, I kind of had to choose Thoroughly Modern Millie or um, this was before, way before Sutton Foster ever. You know, sh- there was an, even other people played the part, <laughs> but that that's kind of was the thing that I had to turn down, was Millie to Mm -hmm. go to do 13 episodes and uh, Annie and Music Man and things like that. So basically, I was doing the... I just finished the 13th episode. It was very tough and very wonderful experience but long long because it was a new show and it it bore my name and I was very nervous and Stephen Schwartz called and said I hear you're in LA I'm doing a reading of this show called Wicked written by Gregory McGuire and I'm really kind of writing a song I'm kind of thinking about all all I can do is think about you for this part Glenda and I would love to send you the script I was like well you can send it to me but I'm tired and I'm in a vacation and I was just kind of done with readings you know i was just like tired well he sent me the, the the um Script and the music, and I read the script, and and at that point Glenda was ve- she was the third lead. It was really Madame Morrible and Alphaba. Really, mm. and Madame Morrible was more the narrator, uh-huh. and um, and Fiero. It was Fiero and Alphaba. Mm. and but the song "Popular," you know, he said, "I just hear you doing this song. This is I wrote it for y- with you in mind," and and then the the some of the lines were just hilarious and. I said, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll do it, I'll do it. And I remember it was at Universal, and Mark Platt was the main producer. And after we got done with the first reading, it became clear that what was scoring was um, the scenes with Elphaba and Glinda. And at the time, that was Stephanie Block, who was still one of my very closest friends, who was coming in with the Pirate Queen. But Mark Platt came to me after, he goes, uh, who are you? And you're like I know you want a Tony and, and he was like, You you gotta do this show and I said, I, I kinda I kinda think I do mm-hmm. and we kept doing workshops over the next year or so and it kept developing. It wasn't like I said I had to have a bigger part. It just it just with Winnie Holtzman's genius and also her trusting me and going, What if we tried or could it be? Um, that's how Glenda became Linda. And uh, what a lot of people don't know is that the night before we opened in San Francisco, there were a lot of my lines, Glinda's lines, were spoofs from the movie. The lawyers for Universal came and said, we can't use those lines be- because basically it's Warner's or Warner Brother. It would have been MGM. MGM, right. Yeah. And um, now those lines have to change. And this was the night before San Francisco opening, and there are very big laughs in the show. And I was like, um, okay, this is a, a, a big bummer, because we're opening, and B, I'm out there sweating bullets. Mm-hmm. And Mark Platt and Winnie and Steven and I sat in the lobby of the hotel at the Clift in San Francisco, and they're like, we just basically, I said, well, can you say things like, good luck, follow the yellow thing, you know, <laughs> can yellow you do thing. that? <laughs> yes, you can, the lawyer would say. <laughs> And I don't even know that that was end up being the line, but I give Stephen Schwartz full credit. One of the biggest laughs in the show was, I used to say, I, I don't know, and, and, and well, did you get your your dog, Toto, or whatever Glenda's line is, as she comes in at the very end to basically save Elphaba. And I couldn't say Toto. And, and, and I was thinking, 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 and <laughs> Stephen Schwartz said, why don't you say Dodo? hmm And just me saying Dodo is funny. But then... Glenda sang Dodo. Well, and your dog Dodo is that okay (laughs) or whatever? It just ended up being one of those experiences that I didn't know how critics were going to react, but I knew the people was going to love it. And I had not been in a hit, a real hit. I mean, the day after I won the Tony, we got our closing notice for Mm. Charlie Brown. Wow. Um, Wicked was. I am so honored and proud to have been involved in a show that touches so many people's lives, namely tween girls. It's a very hard age, but I'll have a straight man come up to me on the street and go, don't tell anybody, but I loved you and wicked. And that's the best compliment ever. It reaches everybody. And it's American, it's it's Americana because it's a story that we're familiar with. It's genius, in, in fact. I think it was a genius move. I knew it was going to make. Now, if I had known it was going to be the juggernaut, I might have asked David Stone and Mark Pat for a little bit more um, residuals on the p- merchandising.
1: <laughs> but <laughs> I didn't,
2: I'm learning. I'm still learning. But um, those boys did a good job doing this show, and I'm just I'm just proud I was in it.
1: Well, you mentioned a song, popular, at Lar.
2: <laughs> Lar.
1: Now, did that song exist when you first uh, saw it and had Stephen Schwartz written it?
2: Yes, but, you know, popular Lar wasn't there. Uh-huh. There was a couple. And the yodel, you know, um, popular. I mean, none of that was, uh-huh. you know, none of that. And he, he just said, I trust you. Go. Whatever you want to add, to it.
1: So was the Laura, was that your ad- addition? Yeah. You, you added that? Yeah. Wow. I hope you have the residuals on that word. No, <laughs> I don't. You didn't get See, that? See,
2: I'm learning so much still, guys. <laughs> I really, really am.
1: Why don't we listen to popular uh, Laura? <laughs> yeah. credited as Glinda, but also known as Galinda. Dropped the A at some <laughs> point during the show there. She starts out as Galinda, becomes Glinda. Is that right? That's that correct. Right? Yeah, yeah. With a guh. Yeah, guh. Galinda, Galinda. Galinda. With, a, with a guh. Galinda. Okay. And, of course, Kristen Chenoweth from Wicked.
0: As I listen to you talk about the opportunities you've had in your career, what's remarkable is how many times you've spoken about the freedom you've had to explore, to create. To try things it's interesting to me that a few years hence you are going to be ma- making your met opera debut, and it would seem to me as somebody who comes out of theater that there's more strictures and more control in what you can do in opera so how do you how do you feel about going back into true performance in that world and really your first chance to to do, you know what
2: I was trained to do. What you
0: were trained to do and taught to do.
2: Uh oh gosh, Howard, you know what? I am scared to death. I'm not afraid to admit it. I know that the opera critics could eat me alive because I've been I've been wait I've been spending fifteen years on the th- theater you know there's there is a some sort of snobbery but you know a lot of the critics though as well in opera are starting to change their opinion on how important acting is you look at a singer like anna Netrebko, and this is a woman who is an actress but her voice is crystal and i love renee fleming because she throws herself into roles but that's what i'll plan to do john corgliano is rewriting uh, the the role to fit my voice it was originally a mezzo soprano so um he is excited to get to revisit and he's also excited i think um you know i'm 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 an actress and and when you hire me that that's going to come first and that was always my cross to bear when i did go to opera competitions was you sometimes let the voice go kristen you let the voice suffer for the acting and I said, I know, I'm. I, I'm. forgive me, but there was another lady that did it, and her name was Maria Callis. Yeah. However, I'm not comparing myself to her. No, no. I don't have near the size that a lot of the opera singers do, but I do have a little bit of cut. It's a new word I learned, mm-hmm. um, basically being heard. Uh, but my lower register is, is going to be a challenge. I'm going to work on that a lot because I'm not belting. <laughs> um, I'm singing opera. And to Peter Gelb and John Corleano's credit, they are going to trust me and give me a chance. And I'd love to do an opera on Broadway, frankly, like Baz Luhrmann did. And I would share with you that I see myself doing that in the future. Bringing an opera to Broadway. Making it an English thing where people and kids can get it. Because I think that people are smarter than we think they are and kids are smarter than we think they are and I would love to get musical theater singers who do opera legit singing cast them and let's go for it.
1: That was going to be my last question. What do you plan to do next on Broadway? So other than opera any other Broadway plans in your future?
2: Well um, I'm, I, you know I, I'm not going to dodge it. There, there There's an offer out to me to do the Young Frankenstein to do Madeleine mm-hmm. Kahn. Uh, uh, we are in negotiation and um, uh-huh. obviously We did the workshop, and it was a dream come true for me to play the role uh, for Mel Brooks, who is (laughs) the number one comic genius in this world. The fact that he thinks I'm funny at all, um, I don't know. I think Young Frankenstein has the possibility of being – an even bigger hit than producers. I'm really proud of the gu- of what the wor- work they've done. I hope it's that. We're in negotiation. If it's not that, um, you know, there's lots of things I'm interested in. There's lots of things that I'd be interested in reviving, um, but, but always a different spin. My Fair Lady is something of interest. Hmm. I've always thought um, highly of Jerry Herman's Mac and Mabel, and he's been trying to He's talked to me about that for years. That I think a book, a book, a look at the book, could be of value. And I love the idea of South Pacific. Um, these are just ideas, by the way. These are, you know. But um, you know, I, I I read things every day that I go, "That's funny." And who knows? Maybe it'll it'll be something that I'll be able to create again. And
0: for my last question, I want to ask about the fact that we have talked so much about musicals, and we went very quickly through Skipan and really didn't talk about epic proportions. As you think of things that you would like to do, do you think about simply dramatic non-musical roles on stage? Because that's what we've not seen yet.
2: Of course. Of course. This is a great question because I'm... You know, the director, Gary, of Appletree, whom I trust so much, said to me, You must do Shakespeare. You must do it. I'm dying to cast you. Name it. And now, I can't name it because I don't know what it would be. Honestly, I don't know what it would be. Um, but, yes, that is something. You know, with, people think that comedy is so easy. And it's just been written a, many times about me. Well, of course she's great in that, that she's funny. They think it's easy. It is the hardest thing ever to do a comedy. Not knocking a drama. I'm not saying that's easy either. It's just a different animal. I want to do that animal. Nobody expected me to go to West Wing. They thought I'd do another sitcom. On stage, I would like to have my West Wing. And by the way, it doesn't have to be the Kristen Chenoweth show. I mean, look at Patty Heaton. She's in, it's not the Patty Heaton play she's doing right now, but she's wonderful in it, I've heard. So, smart lady. That's kind of where I'm at.
1: The final, final question. You named two out of your three idols, Barbara Cook, Bernadette Peters. Number three is?
2: Take a guess. Madeline Kahn. <laughs> well, you have a dog named Madeline Kahn. So yes. I, I would have kind of guessed that. I would have guessed that. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of women I look up to. Terry Garr, you know, Julie Andrews. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, I would never touch Sound of Music. Nobody did, I don't think I could ever be, I would be brave enough to do it. Uh, I'm speaking of if they came ever c- did come to me about doing a remake of the film, I wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. But Julie Andrews, Judy Garland, Barbara Streisand, these were big influences on my life. Dolly Parton, huge influence. But has to, I have to stick with my Madeline.
1: Well, I would love to see those negotiations be fruitful. Thank you. And on that note, Kristen Chenoweth, thanks so much for being with us
0: today on Downstage Center.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks, Kristen. For the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org.
1: And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you.
2: Thank you.